Praise International. I'm Joe Y. Rostick. We've been, we've been doing a, a series on worldviews, and normally at this time, I would give you about two minutes to talk to each other, but I've been going too late on the preaching side, so I can't do that anymore. I apologize. I've been getting in trouble with my wife. She says, you're going too long on Sundays, the first and second service. They're clashing in the, uh, the lobby out there. So let's go right into the Word as we talk about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse, verse 1. The video was pretty basic. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He is not two persons. He is one person, and those are the two natures coming together. So we don't dis, uh, discount God's humanity. We don't discount God's divinity. We don't, we don't then say, well, that means there's two persons now in Jesus, like Jesus had a little human person walking around going, wow, uh, inside of him going, wow, this is cool. God's in me right now, and I'm God and all of that. And, and by the way, that's what cults actually believe. If you follow like Apollo Quibloy, he's being right now charged with sex trafficking in the Philippines. He has about a million followers in the Philippines that believe he's Jesus. Along with the other false Jesuses, they always say, Jesus came and possessed me. Jesus, literally the person, came and possessed me, this person. And now there's the person of Jesus here, and now I'm the divine son of God. That is a heresy. We've never believed that, even when it came to the person called Jesus that walked the earth. We always say it just very simply like this. Jesus as the son existed in all of eternity as a spiritual being, just as the father is now as the son is now, and he put on flesh to walk among us. He didn't stop being God. He started being man, so he was the God-man. And I teach it to my children in a very simple way, and uh, let's see if I can get Hannah to come on up. Let's give it up for Hannah as she comes. And then, Hannah, make sure you grab your Bible in the back there. No, but come here real quick. I'm just saying, make sure you grab your Bible on your way back because I got it there for you. Okay. So let's see if my daughter gets an extra treat today, okay? What does the hypostatic union mean? Jesus has two natures. He is God in the flesh. Woo! Somebody's getting ice cream today. Thank you. God bless you. Now get that Bible. I, I got it for you in the back. The hypostatic union is the theological term that we use to describe the hypostasis in the Greek, the nature of God becoming man. That's the term that we use. And so he has two natures. He is God in the flesh. Are you with me in John chapter 1, verse 1? Come on, somebody say, I'm there. I mean, if you're not with me and you're waiting for me to go here, how do you know I'm going to go there? What if I just put up this and said this was John chapter 1? Would you believe it? you got to look on your phones and your Bibles as well, folks. Let me give you a few minutes to get there. But you just can't take the word of the karaoke screen. What if I said John chapter 1 said, take your pastor out to lunch, give him $1,000? How would you know I was telling you the truth? you got to learn how to work your own word because the karaoke screen is not going to be with you when you go to your job. So how many are with me now in John chapter 1 verse 1? Okay, thank you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right here we learn in the New Testament that John starts us in the beginning. All the other gospel writers talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, but right here John takes us before the virgin birth. He actually takes us to a point before Jesus ever had his name Jesus. The name Jesus is actually given to the Word of God coming in the flesh. 
That's the name given to him. You shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was actually a popular name at that time. It's the same word of Joshua. If you want to say it in Hebrew, it's Yahshua. So Yahshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the Greek name. And then when you bring that into the English, it's Jesus. It's not a conspiracy. Sometimes people think that Jesus is a derivative of uh, Zeus because it sounds like there's Zeus at the end of the name name there. That is a lie. That's stupid. Don't believe those kinds of things. A lot of conspiracies exist around around the names of Jesus, but let me just make it real simple for you. Even if they spoke Aramaic and Hebrew at the time, the New Testament documents are written in Greek. There are no New Testament documents in Hebrew and Aramaic. So if people try to say to you, you're not praying to the right person unless you say Yahshua, then then you're you're saying Jesus, a made-up name. That is a lie. The actual scripture that says whoever says Jesus is Lord in Romans was written in Greek. So whoever says Jesus is Kyrios, is Lord, is saved. So don't get caught up in some of these Hebraic movements that want to go back to the original names to make it sound more special than what it really is. Our New Testament documents were written in Greek. And we know that they were trilingual at that time. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, okay? And Aramaic is a part of the Hebrew language there. So we learn that Jesus... Jesus' pre-incarnate name. Now listen to that word, incarnate. What does this word sound like? Carne. Carne. Meat. Okay, that's where it comes from, Latin language. So before Jesus put on meat, before Jesus put on flesh, before he came in the flesh, he was known as the Word. And he was with God. And we know that that in the beginning phrase, in the beginning, what does that sound like, in the beginning? What, what chapter does that sound like in our Bible? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. So do you think it's an accident that John is starting off his, his chapter here of his gospel going in the beginning, and then in Genesis it says in the beginning? No, of course not. It's purposely pointing you to the place in the beginning. So wh- where is the beginning? The beginning is before everything was created. So the beginning is for us where everything starts to get created, like that begins time, but already before the beginning, in other words, as far back as you can say the Father has existed, the Word is existing with the Father. So this right here does away with anybody like a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon that tries to say Jesus was created at some point. Mormons literally believe that the Father in heaven has multiple wives and creates children, and Jesus is one of them, and Satan is one of them. So they're brothers in heaven. And they were made through procreation by God's having sex. And then Jesus got a physical body by the Father knocking on the door of Mary saying, let's get it on. That's honestly, those Mormons, they look real nice with their shirts on, but they've got a lot of wacky theology going on with their bike riding. They believe that the Father had sex with Mary to produce the body for Jesus. Check the script, but not right now. Pay attention to what I'm doing. Learn Mormon false doctrine later, okay? And then other people try to say Jesus was created. This statement takes away from all of that. Now, where is the one confusing part here when it says, and the word was God? 
the number one competing philosophy of Jesus' nature that we as Pentecostals fight with aren't the Jehovah Witnesses. We know that's silly. It's not the Mormons. It's the oneness Pentecostals who actually broke off from us in the 1900s. And why their oneness is because they point to scriptures like this and say, see, the word was God. The word was the Father. Jesus is the Father. There's only one person in God, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is sometimes the Father, sometimes he's the son and sometimes he's the holy spirit and then they'll go to the passage of matthew 28 and uh, matthew chapter 28 19 baptize in the name of the father son holy spirit and then they'll take you to the book of acts and show you that they baptize in the name of jesus and then they say see there you go in the name of the father son the holy spirit is the name of jesus and if you don't track with them that is convincing and it convinces a lot of people that jesus is the father the son and the holy spirit that's his name but this 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 passage this proves it. Why? Because the, pre the previous portion says, and the word was with God. In the Greek, it literally means pros, tan, theon. Pros is with, tan is, is was, was, and then God, theon. Pros, tan, theon. He is with somebody. The word is with somebody named God. So can you be with yourself? Can you be face to face with yourself? No, you got to be with somebody else. The Bible's not tricking us here. So when it says here he's with God and then he is God, we look to the third part that says was God. The word God there is actually a predicate nominative. And what that means is it's describing the nature of the word. It's not saying that he's the same person of the person that he's facing in the previous part. So you could read it like this, literally. And the word was face to face with God, and the word was God in nature. Does everybody get that? Remember that as we keep going. Otherwise, the oneness Pentecostal will contradict themselves in just a few moments, but I want to read it in its entirety. Notice again it says, he was with God in the beginning. You can't be with yourself. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is with the Father, but Jesus has a special place in creation. Things are actually being made through him. Now that's where we get to the Greek word logos, where we get the word word from. And logos is where we get ology from, and the study of everything is the study, like theology. That's, that's the root word ology is the root word there, logos, Logic as well, root word logos. So what this means is John is using the Greek term logos, and they actually had this in their philosophical, in their world of the, the philosophers, that the logos was, the, was the, the basis for all of creation. Now, notice that in Christianity, we can borrow from their thought, but then redeem it and use it for the glory of God. He says, you guys know about this logic. You guys know about this power of force out in the world, but he is a person. It's not just a force. It's not just a philosophy. And he is from, uh, or rather the word, through him all things were made. So now we know that we're not just made by a force. We're made by a person. And without Jesus, nothing has been made. Now watch this. In him was life, and that life was the, the light of all mankind. So when we go back to Genesis and we see that God is breathing life into Adam and Eve, who is that person of the Trinity? 
That's Jesus. That's literally the pre-incarnate, the pre-flesh Jesus or the Word or the Son breathing light into a uh, breathing life into us. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now watch as we keep going. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this can be confusing to some people. The John mentioned here is not the John of the gospel. The John of the gospel is the disciple. The John mentioned here is John the Baptist. Everybody know the difference? Okay, so John the Baptist was sent before Jesus to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. He, talking about John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Now notice this. If Jesus is anyone less than God, why is he the creator of all things? Only God is the creator of all things. Why are we to believe in him for salvation? Only God is to be believed in. And why is he said to have the same exact nature, the same title as the Father. He must be equal to God. So that's why John the Baptist is sent. And even in the prophecy where we know in other places that John the Baptist is a voice calling in the wilderness, that comes from Malachi, and it says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Guess who the Lord is? Yahweh, Jehovah, the great God of Israel. So John the Baptist is literally preparing the way for Jesus. And also, we know it had to be Jesus as our God-man coming in the flesh because God said he would visit the second temple with more glory than he did the first temple when Solomon built it. The second temple was rebuilt when they came back from the captivity of Babylon and when they came there they actually were disappointed at the inauguration because it didn't have any of the signs and wonders that Solomon's inauguration had where the glory came into the temple and they couldn't work, the priests couldn't work because it was so powerful. So they were disappointed those who remembered back in the day what the temple was like. But the problem prophets began to say, that's not how the glory is going to come. God said, I myself will come into the temple. And so when Jesus came to the temple as the God-man, that was the greater glory that had been prophesied. Are you guys listening? So he came into the world, and John the Baptist was there to testify. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So who was the world made through? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus made the whole world. You ever heard the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus has the whole world in his hands because he made it. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Those are the Jewish people. The Jewish people led to his death. Now, you have to understand that was actually a prophecy, that he would be rejected by his own people. So if you think you would have done differently, Remember, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Jewish people had the law. They weren't pagans. Jewish people had the scriptures. They weren't just reading the newspaper. They were reading the Bible. But the reason why they missed him is because they thought the Messiah was only going to come and conquer the nations and be a ruling king. They missed the first coming of Jesus, in other words. The Messiah was also prophesied in Isaiah 53, like we read last week, that the Messiah would take on our sufferings, that he 
he would be stricken and afflicted. He would be crushed. And so they only looked to the other parts of Isaiah where the line would lay with the lamb, where all the world would come to worship in Jerusalem, and they missed that first part. Now, how important is the first coming of Jesus? It's very important because if Jesus would have only came to judge the world as they thought he ought to have, everybody would have been judged, including the Jews, and going to hell. Because the book of Hebrews is very clear. It was never the sacrifice of animals that made us cleanse. It was a prophecy. It was a precursor for the actual Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming to take away our sins. So if Jesus never would have came and died on the cross and been a suffering servant, no sins ever would have been forgiven. So he came to his own, but they did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice this. We only become children of God when we believe in Jesus. So you're born by default a child of the devil under his authority, under his curse, because of what Adam and Eve did, our great, 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 great ancestors. How do you get a new citizenship? How do you get a new birth? By coming to Jesus. And that's John's message. This is John chapter 1. What happens in John chapter 3? Jesus tells a very religious man, unless you're born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the purpose of John is to take you through the whole story of Jesus from the beginning to the end in, the, in hopes that you will believe in Jesus and become a child of God. How many children of God do I have here today? Amen. So that means you've received him. You've believed in his name, the name of Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53.10, that his offspring will become numerous. And that's where a lot of times the Jews go, Isaiah 53 couldn't be about Jesus. Jesus didn't have no kids. Oh, yeah, he did. I'm one of them right here. I'm a spiritual child of God because of what Jesus did. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, he, Jesus, Emmanuel, mighty God, those titles are given, but he's also given the name Everlasting Father. That's when the oneness Pentecostal goes, see, look at the prophecy. He will be called Everlasting Father. You guys believe that's Jesus. And we go, yeah, I can be a father but not be my father that gave me birth. Are you guys listening? There can be two fathers in different ways. I'm a father, but I'm not Jim Wyrostic, my father. Are you listening? Jesus is a father to us, but he's not God the Father. How is Jesus a father to us? Because he regenerates us by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's not the person of the Father. Do you see that? There's the person of the Father that does fatherly work. There's the person of the Son. He also does fatherly work. And guess what? The Holy Spirit also does that because he's the one that deposits the seed. Literally in the Greek word seed is sperma. What word does that sound like, folks? He drops the sperm. The Holy Spirit drops the sperm of God in us through the Word of God. So they all act in a fatherly way, but yet the Father is still the person of the Father. The Son is still the person of the Son and thus with the Holy Spirit. And so it says here, you're not born again by human decision, a husband's will, but born of God. What this means is you're not being born again, even because it's your desire or your husband's desire or natural descent. It's God's desire. Now, ultimately, you do have a choice, but it's not something that you decided to do. It's something God decided to do. He loves you first so that you can love him. He pursues you so that you can pursue him. Do you see the difference there? 
Now, how do I know, going back to John chapter 1, verse 1, that the oneness is wrong, that the word there cannot be the same person he's facing? Because now we see it in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. See, some of y'all thought I was trying to trick you in John 1.1. 1, 1, but I also read ahead, didn't I, to John 1.14. For the first time now in John chapter 1, the titles are now given Father and Son. So let's go back. Boop, boop, boop. Back it up. Boop. You guys ready to go back to John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word. Now who do we know that? Who is that? The Son, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God like the Father. See, would, would John contradict himself? No, he's not trying to say the Son is the Father just because he calls him God. He's showing you that the Son is God like the Father. Who was he with according to John 1.14? Sometimes people go, oh, Pastor, you're just making it so tricky. No, who is he with according to John 1.14? It says he was with the Father. The Word was with the Father. He's full of grace and truth, not hard. Heretics make it hard, okay? Follow the truth of the Bible, and it's simple, Amen. John, talking about the Baptist, John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's why in the gospel of John, Jesus continually uses the divine name of God in the Greek, ego amai, which is I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name given to God in the old, God, the name God gives Moses to know who he is. When he, Moses asked God, who should I say sent me in Exodus chapter 3, God says, say that I am, that I am has sent me. Now that was originally said in Hebrew, but the Jews around the time of Jesus had translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, called it Septuagint, LXX, because 70 scholars got together and did it. L is the Roman numeral for 50, X is 10, and another X is 10. So you know what they did when they translated it there in Exodus chapter 3? You know what Greek word that they used to describe the I am that I am of Hebrew? They said, ego am I. So in God's Gospel and in God, according to God, his name is Ego Amai in the Greek. And then Jesus in the Gospel of John continually calls himself Ego Amai. Before Abraham was, I am. And he uses that word over and over again to describe his nature. Somebody say, Jesus is God. Y'all getting some theology today. Y'all ready for this? Amen. John testified about him. He said, Before I was, he was. And that's that's showing the pre-existence of God. Now look at verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace and place of grace already given. That means all the grace that they were given in the old covenant, all the times they were forgiven, actually came from Jesus. It was the Son all along that was giving them grace. And now he's come to give more grace in the new covenant, which he's going to make with his own blood. And that's what he does at the Last Supper. He says, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood. This juice represents my blood. This body represents me. This is the new covenant that I'm making with you. That's why we go from the Old Testament, testament meaning covenant, to New Testament. Or just think old deal to new deal. It's all based on Jesus giving us grace in place of grace. 
Now look at it clearly just in case you thought I was making it up. Now verse 17 clearly clarifies what I was saying. For the law was given through Moses, standing for the old covenant, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, now signifying the new covenant. Now just in case anybody was wondering, how does John tie it all together? Look at what he says. This is the this is the disciple John, the apostle John. He says, no one has ever seen, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and in his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Boom. There it is, folks. That's who your Jesus is. There's no tricks up our sleeve. So anybody that comes with false doctrine, we just work them through the first 18 verses of John. And if you just want the most, the, the most important ones there, just go John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, John 1.18. Here it is in review, very simply, just for you. Look at your neighbor and say, review is for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's our interpretation. In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God like the Father. Let's see if we're right. We continue on now to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Ding, ding, ding. That must be the Word who came from the Father. Ding, ding, ding. The one He is facing, full of grace and truth. Now, what is the nature of the Son? No one has ever seen God. See, this is where the oneness Pentecostal contradicts himself. If we've seen Jesus all these other times and he's God, then that means this makes no sense because it says we've never seen him. What does it mean here? No one has ever seen God the Father, but the one and only Son who is himself God, like the Father, is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Amen. So let me give you some verses now from the Old Testament, New Testament. We will certainly not go to them all, but to show you Jesus doing what only Jesus can do. Now, we use the name Jesus in the pre-incarnate state because that's what the disciples did as well. They just take that name and apply it to the Old Testament. That's why you see scriptures like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever because, you know, God knows who we're talking about. But if you wanted to be precise to talk to a cult to get away from the confusion, you could just refer to his pre-incarnate state as the Son or the Word. But look at what we see in Genesis. Not very far from where we were reading last week in Genesis chapter 3, we saw the fall. Genesis chapter 6, we saw Noah's flood around Genesis what chapter 8 where's Jared at we see Tower of Babel Genesis chapter 11 now look at Genesis chapter 18 God meets with Abraham face to face now like I said I can't go to all of them but let's just go to Genesis 18 so you can see I'm not inserting anything tricky here now, sometimes people ask, well, why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? I just told you about the issues they have with him being the Messiah. But then they may argue back and say, and also, we don't believe God has a son. God is just the father. He's only one person. The Messiah will never be God. Now, guess what? The Jews have problems with their own scriptures. Because when we talked about the Trinity, I pointed this out. If they believe the scriptures of the Old Testament, how do they account for things like this? The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. That's Genesis 18. Who do we believe wrote Genesis chapter 18? Moses wrote it, correct? Okay, now watch this right here. Moses wrote that. Now go to uh, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 right here. And I want you to see what Moses said about God and how no one could see him. Exodus chapter 33. Look at what it says when he asks him to see his face. Look what God tells him. He says, no one shall see my face and live. Look, watch this right here. 
He says, I will do the very thing you ask because I am pleased with you and you will know my name. He says, now let your glory pass before me. Now look at verse 20. But you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Genesis chapter 18 says the Lord comes and meets with Abraham, talks to him. Then Abraham and God have a face-to-face conversation about interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And right here, Moses, the very one who wrote the historical record of Genesis, writes in Exodus, God told him, you can't see him face-to-face. But guess what? The contradiction even gets worse because in the very same chapter, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, guess what it says about Moses and God? They're hanging out face to face just like he did with Abraham. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. (laughs) Somebody gets it, don't you? So here's the problem. Jews got the problem. Christians got the answers. See, we understand just like them when the Bible says in, in, in our New Testament, because John wanted to make sure he reiterated this in John 1.18. He is reiterating the same thing the Jews has always believed. No one has ever seen God. We agree with you guys, but guess what? The one and only son who is himself God, that's the one we've been talking to this whole time. See, Jesus is not a man becoming God. Like they think we're trying to hoist him up like some guru, a man becoming God. Jesus is God becoming man. So when we talk to Muslims or to, or, to, um, or to Jews who think we're trying to elevate Jesus beyond his status, we're actually answering the questions of the Bible and the book that they all affirm. Jews affirm the Old Testament. Muslims affirm the Old Testament. So tell me what, smarty pants, who is, God, who is the God that Abraham is meeting with? Who is the one that Jacob is wrestling with? Who is Moses' face-to-face friend? Who is Joshua's commander of the Lord's army? Who is David's shepherd? Who is David's Lord? Who is Isaiah seen high and lifted up? And who is the Son of Man receiving worship in Daniel's visions? If it's not Jesus, y'all don't know the Bible then. Because there ain't no other way to answer it. So, th- so sometimes people like to make it out to be that Christians have done more than they're supposed to. No, we're the ones being true to the script. We're the ones being true to the script. Let me give you an example. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. How many want to see Jesus again in the Old Testament? Uh, not 61, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 rather. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, in the year that, the king, that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Who did he see? The Lord, for all those people who talk to Jehovah Witnesses, this is Jehovah, and the proper name is Yahweh. I saw him. I saw the Lord, Adonai. I saw him high and lifted up. And look at this. And he was exalted, seated on a throne. A train filled his ro- uh, The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With the two, they covered their feet. And with the other two, they were flying. Now, remember, we learned about the cherub. Cherub have two wings. Seraphim have six wings. Angels don't have wings, okay? And they were calling one to another. Holy, holy, holy is what? The Lord Almighty, Yahweh. So he says, my Adonai, in the beginning, I saw him high and lifted up, and I saw the angels worshiping, calling him Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you want to know who? Isaiah saw John, our favorite author right here, right now. John chapter 12, verse 21. Go there. John chapter 12, verse 21 tells us exactly who he saw. John chapter 12, verse 41, rather. Look at who Isaiah saw. Don't you love working the word like this? How many like working the word like this? No tricks up my sleeve. Look at this. He talks about Isaiah. Isaiah made prophecies against the Jewish people that they would reject the Messiah. And then he goes, and you know what? 
Isaiah said this because he saw whose glory? Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So guess what? When we deal with the Jehovah Witnesses, we have to say, show me where Isaiah saw anybody else's glory other than Yahweh's. <laughs> and God said he doesn't share his glory with another in the same book. Amen? You might say, Pastor, why do you give these cults so much of your time? You know why? Because I want you to know we're not afraid of confronting them when we put on our worldview glasses. If you don't know what a worldview is, it's how you see the world. And there's a lot of people out there that see the world wrong, and it's our job to go to the Scriptures and put on the biblical worldview. And so it says here that he saw the glory of the Lord. He saw the train fill the temple. This is the only time that Isaiah even sees God. We know that it is Jesus that he saw. Now, what about in the New Testament? Obviously, we just... We we just read John in chapter 1, but how about the rest of the Bible? Well, in John chapter 20, let's go there. John chapter 20, verse 26, we see Jesus is called my God and my Lord by Thomas. You remember doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas said, I won't believe until I touch him. Well, he got that chance, and he said, uh, peace be with you. Then Thomas said to him, put, uh, he said to Thomas, rather, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out and put it on my side, stop doubting and believe. And then what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. You know what some cults try to make this out to be? He, he touches Jesus, and he goes, my Lord, my God. You know, like as if he's talking to somebody else now. You know, like as if he was just referring to God up there. No, no, no. After he put his hands there and believed, he looked at Jesus and he said, My Lord, my God. You're my Lord. You're my God. And see, the problem with that is, is many cults will say that he's Lord like a master, but he's not God and all-powerful. No, you see them connected together. There's only one Lord the Christians have, and there's only one God. Amen? And he has manifested or revealed himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And so when he said that of Jesus, he was declaring him to be Yahweh, my Yahweh, my Elohim. That's what he would have been saying if he was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. So he's the eternal word. He's Thomas's God, worthy of worship. He's our great God and Savior in Titus. He's the image of the invisible God with all the fullness of God in bodily form in Colossians. He's Yahweh like the Father in, Yah in Matthew chapter 28, 19. He's the God of Israel on his throne in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. He's Peter's God in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And he's the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation. 117. Let's go there real quick. How many like the book of Revelation? Amen. Amen. Y'all ain't scared of it, are you? How many like Super Bowls when your team's in it? Amen. And how many like it when your team wins? How many like championships when you win? That's all book of Revelation is for us. We're on the winning team. Amen. I mean, come on. You know when the losing team gets upset, it's because they're losers, right? But we're not losers. When you read the book of Revelation, don't read it like a loser and be scared. Read it like a winner and say, come Lord Jesus now. Amen. Maranatha, my Lord. I'm ready. Let's get it on. Okay. Well, matter of fact, I'm just going to show you pastor ain't making that up either. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21, last part of the book. That's exactly your attitude as, as a Christian should be is, Lord, bring it on. Come even now. Bring that judgment. We so cowardly, mostly in churches today, uh, Revelation chapter 22 rather, that we don't even know what this whole thing's about. Read the book of Revelation, get excited. Look at what it says there. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. How many are saying today, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. 
praise God. Now go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Now you got to know that when John tried to worship an angel in heaven, the angel said, no, 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 don't you worship me. But when he falls before Jesus, Jesus let him worship him. When I saw him talking about Jesus, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The first and the last only is a title of Jesus. Are you listening? I mean, only a title of God. How many believe that there can only be one first? I don't care what they told you in uh, school, and maybe they try to give a trophy to everybody now, but how many know there can only be one first? Okay, so either Jesus is equal to the Father, or you're trying to say there's a bunch of firsts. If you go to Isaiah chapter 4, Old Testament again, same Isaiah that saw him high and lifted up. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, was the first of them, and with the last, I am he. That's who we're talking about, baby. Now, who does Jesus say he is in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and onward? I am the living one. I am the first and the last. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so some people will ask, well, how could God die and still be God? Well, first of all, when you die, you're still yourself. We don't believe when your flesh dies, your soul dies. We don't believe in annihilation. Your soul just carries on to another location. When Jesus took on flesh, flesh just died. He never died as God. Are you listening? So that's how we know that's Jesus. He was the one that was killed but made alive. And he tells you, but guess what? I've been there from the first, and I'm going to be there at the end. Amen? And so when we look at the Athanasian Creed, as we did before, this ancient creed from the 300s, we're confirmed in our testimony today. We're with the ancient church. Let me just say this. Everybody look up at me, please. Do not be turned off by tradition that is based in the Word of God. Trust me, I hate everything with bells and smells and people dressing up like mother and calling themselves father and pointy hats. I'm with you on all of that. I'm not going in some dark closet confessing my naughty secrets to Father Tom, okay? But we ought not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in this generation of technology and, and things changing so fast, to literally think we're the first ones on the planet to understand the Bible. Because Jesus actually promised he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail. So if you think the church only started with you here, then you're saying Jesus got his tail whooped the last 2,000 years. So what do we say when we look back through church history? We say that God used it for his glory and there were always people holding it down. And if you want to see a book that I wrote on that, I haven't published it yet. It's online. All you have to do is go to uh, Disciples of the First Disciples and then you can see this book right here that I wrote, and I'll just mention it right here. D-O-D. Everybody say D-O-D. Disciples of the first disciples. And as you can see, I have all of these chapters here that describe where we came from, starting from the time of Jesus at 33 AD all the way down. And then I talk about, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and, and where they started to go off. I actually have a list of their false doctrines here that you guys can take a look at. And this is for your benefit so that you can see, yes, we are a part of the ancient church. We hold to the creeds and the confessions, but we don't go off where they went off. You know, So if you want to know where uh, praying to the saints started, you can look here on this timeline that I have or where the first pope came from or where they began to uh, have candles in their services and all these things. I took my time to list this out for you guys, and you guys can go all through that. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So now, let's go back to the Athanasian Creed, who I believe was a true Christian, okay? He actually believed the Bible. He wanted us to remember this creed. These guys were willing to die for it. 
So let's just read through it. We've read through the entire thing when we did the message on the Trinity. I'm just going to go through it now for Jesus' section of it. It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. So they believed your salvation depended on how you thought about Jesus. This is important. It's 300 A.D., folks, uh, right around 300-400 A.D. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And what that means, begotten before time, that doesn't mean he was created before time. It means that before time he has always been the son. They have always been in a father-son relationship, and the Holy Spirit has always been serving the father and son. They never had a beginning. They all have been eternal, but as far back as we can go, the son has always been the son. Father's always been the father. Spirit's always been the spirit. And sometimes people say, well, that must mean if Jesus has a father over him or an authority that he's not equal to the father. My wife and I are equal in nature, but I'm over her in authority in the home. That doesn't mean we're of different nature. We're both equally human. How many believe women are humans? Amen. So just because there's order in the Godhead, order does not mean different nature. Amen. Just because my children are under me, and let's just say we froze time and my children are always children and I'm always this age, you know, a father to them, that, does ne- that would never make them less of a human than I am a human. And I would never be more of a human than them. And now you understand they're all powerful, they're all knowing, but from eternity past, the son has always been the son, the father's always been the father. He is human in his essence from his mother, born in time. And that's where people went off saying, well, if the mother gave Jesus his body, which is true, the Holy Spirit came into Mary and gave Jesus his body, that that must mean she's the mother of God. That's where it's not true. Because God doesn't have a mother like a origin of where he comes from. When we say the word mother in that way, we mean a beginning. From the mother, you got your body. But if you're using the term mother of God in the sense that she mothered his earthly body and mothered Jesus the man, no problem there. So be careful with the term mother of God. But I can guarantee you this, she don't want you praying or worshiping to her or having statues in your house of her, okay? So let's make sure that that even though some people exalt her to the place of being equal with God and somebody you pray to, that we don't denigrate her to the place where we have no respect for her. Mother of God is still a good title if you understand it correctly. And that's how it would be meant here, that she mothered God in his flesh. And Jesus allowed her to do that. And that's a special place that we play, uh, believe she played, and blessed the Holy Mother Virgin Mary above all women. We believe all of that, amen? Like I said, let's not denigrate her to make her something that she wasn't. She was chosen by God to do this, but she was a sinner like everybody else, and after she had Jesus, her and Joseph got it on and had other children. Two of Jesus's half-brothers wrote books of the Bible. James and Jude were written, written by them. We can show you that in the New Testament as well. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. So the human nature is not God. We're not saying that God is a human in that sense. God took on flesh. If God did not take on flesh, that flesh would not be in the place that it's at now. It was given that authority, that you know, Jesus given that authority on behalf of us because he himself is God. Although he is God in 
human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity turning into flesh. This is where I always teach you guys this. But by God's taking huma- by God taking humanity to himself. Does everybody see the difference? He didn't do like what the ancient pagans did, become a man, like turn his God nature into a human nature. No, it's like us putting on clothes. When you put on clothes, you don't change into what your clothes are just in that sense. You don't become the actual space suit or the shoes you're putting on. Jesus put on flesh like we would put on clothes, like a space suit. Uh, suit. Divinity took on humanity by God taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human, now get this, just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, your spiritual and your flesh, so too the one Christ is God and human. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. And what did he do for us? He suffered for our salvation. He descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming all people will rise bodily and give an accounting of their deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. Everybody go, Amen. This is the universal faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. If you believe it, shout, Jesus is Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Now, can I give you some basic questions answered before we go? You guys got some time? You got somewhere to go? You guys got a few more minutes? Okay, amen. Here we go. If Jesus was God, people ask, why did he get tired, have to learn things, and was able to die? If Jesus was God, shouldn't he have known everything? He should never have been tired. Why is that? Uh, why did that happen? Because Jesus, Jesus allowed himself to be limited to the experience of a true person. He took on flesh. He was really a person. At the same time, he never stopped being God. And also death does not make a soul cease, as I said before. It just puts one person in a different place, changes locations. How about this one? You ever get asked this? Why didn't Jesus just tell everybody, hey, I'm God. Hey, guys, here I am. Hey, here I am. And, and worship me. That's what you're supposed to do. Worship me like Isaiah did. And a lot of times you'll hear this from the Muslims. You know, they'll be like, you know, you Christians always do all these verses and put them all together like a jigsaw puzzle. Why didn't Jesus just come out and just go, hey, I'm God. Worship me. You ever think about that? It's a good question. Jesus didn't take on flesh to put on a circus but to die for the sins of his creation. If Jesus came down as God and commanded everybody to worship him, could he have been crucified for our sins? No, the Bible literally said when, when Peter cut off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers, Jesus was like, hey, hey, put that away. I've got legions of angels up there, and just two of them dropped it like it was hot on Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you think 5,000 of my boys will do to this place right now? Ease up, Peter. I came down to do this. Do you all get it? I mean, it even says it in our story. That's the problem. See, people don't even read our story. That's like, like when people went to Sunday school for a little bit and they become a, a little wannabe atheist in college or whatever and they try to get sassy and they talk about these issues. It's like, dude, just read the Bible. Kind of talks about it there. Like we give the solution to the problem there, you know. Uh, Jesus talked about this. He came to die for our sins. He literally said this. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. That's literally what he told us he, what he came to do. Amen. Well, it's up to you whether or not you believe Jesus or not, or your college professor or your friend on Facebook, but I'm going to believe Jesus in his words. Amen. How about this one? If Jesus was God, then why did he pray to the Father? 
receive instruction and be given authority from the Father. It looks like while Jesus is on earth, he's actually under the authority of the Father. He's praying to the Father. Like, why is he doing that? Well, the thing I always like to say real quick is, did you expect Jesus to be an atheist while he was on earth? Be like, I don't talk to my Father anymore. We're, we're, not, we're not on good terms anymore. No, he's going to keep talking to his Father. Jesus was submitted to his Father as a perfect example for us. That's why he taught us to pray, our Father, our, plural. He has a Father. That's his Father. And he taught us to pray like the way he prays, talk the way he talks. And so, as I said before, just because you have authority, somebody has authority over you doesn't mean they're of different nature than you. Prayer is simply talking to people. Why would the son ever stop talking to the father? And once again, like Daniel, we talked about Daniel chapter 7, as Matthew 28 says happened. The prophecy was in Daniel. Why did the son of man receive authority from the father after he raised from the dead? Is it because the son of God never had it? No, he was equal to the father in all ways. Who had lost the authority in the garden of Eden? Man did. Adam did. Mankind lost it. Man need to get it. That's why Jesus became a man. And guess what? As long as Jesus has a resurrected body, we get the promise of a resurrected body to live with him forever. I know this may sound weird, but this is how it works. If Jesus ever takes off that body, you don't exist anymore and you're going to hell. Or your body, your glorified body will evaporate and your soul will go to hell. The only reason why we get a glorified body and get to resurrect is because Jesus resurrected. And I like to kind of think of him kind of sci-fi terms. As long as Jesus' power is flowing through that flesh, that is on behalf of us so that we can be powered through the flesh that we'll have at the resurrection. Amen. I got one amen on the front row. Thank you, my brother. Glad you came today. Anybody else want to say amen to that? Kind of like it's important, Jesus keeping his flesh and us being resurrected. Just think about it for a minute. It's pretty important. How about this last question? After Jesus' resurrection, why does he still call God his Father? So some people will be like, well, if he just did that while he was a man, Jehovah Witnesses will take you to Revelation, and it will say, he still says he has a God. He still says he has a Father. Why does he do that? Because he's still the God-man. He's never stopped being a man. Jehovah Witnesses believe that he's a secondary God that took on flesh, and then when he died, he resurrected and went back to a spirit like an angel. We don't believe that because Thomas touched him. And he said, does a spirit have flesh like I do, blood like I do? Can it eat like I do? He said, this is who I am, flesh and blood. So we believe he has real flesh. He's still the God-man, and we believe he'll be the forever God-man. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I want to apply this to you as uh, Adam comes, please. Somebody say, make it personal. I want to make this message personal to you. What can we learn from the incarnation of Jesus? I want to say that today during the worship time, it was such a powerful presence of the Lord here. And we should understand that the reason why God's presence comes in this church and in our lives and in our prayer times is because of what Jesus did out of his humility for us. Jesus was the most meekest person to ever walk the earth. He was God in flesh. He could have been a king. He could have made people worship him. He could have bowed them down, just like you see with Darth Vader. He makes their knees go to the ground. He chokes them, makes them stop talking. Jesus could have been like that times 100. Yet he came as a lamb unto slaughter. He came as a servant of all. Now, Paul took that same example and pointed it towards the Christians. Look at this example Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... If any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, be one in spirit and one mind. Okay, now I want you to get this. Paul is saying to us, just like he did back then, hey, 
If you guys are with Christ and you feel his presence at these altars in the service and you share in his love and you're full of his joy and his tenderness is upon your life and you're compassionate as you go out in this world, guess what? You need to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the, each one of you looking to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is a past reference using the name, so that's an example. As Christ Jesus, what was his mindset? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Angels, give me something to eat. I'm hungry now. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He said, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. You couldn't have taken his life if he wouldn't have let you take it. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. That's what he did for us, and that's what we'll do for him. So it don't matter if you don't bow your knee now. You will bow your knee then. But guess what? Guess what, everybody? It's better if you bow your knee now and live a humble life now. Treating others as Jesus treated us. Did Jesus come and take from us? Was he a Darth Vader on this planet? No, not at all. Was he like those gurus that you see dressed up and hoisted up on people's shoulders and walk through the streets and they put gold all over them? No. The Bible says that he was with the children, the poor, the neglected, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the fishermen. And the Bible says that he did it with joy. The Bible says, for the joy, Hebrews chapter 12, set before him, he endured, endured the cross. So now let me ask you this. Who are you willing to be Jesus to today? Who are you willing to be Jesus to today? Jesus is in your life, isn't he? And doesn't Jesus want to use you to be like him to this world? So who's going to be like Jesus on their job this week and humble themselves, be selfless and kind? Who's going to be like Jesus in their family today and not just stomp around and say, I'm in charge. Everybody bow to my will. I'm not saying discipline is wrong. I'm just saying, who's going to do it like Jesus today? Because the Bible is very clear. As he was, so are we in this world. The Bible says we shall see him as he is. And we have this hope because he is pure and he makes us pure. And he takes away our sin. And he takes away all of the things that we've done wrong. And he shows us his love for us. And then he tells us to do the same exact thing for others. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Can we give it up for Jesus today as we stand up, congregation? Thank you for coming. Let's all have uh, the, bands, the band and altar workers come up here, please. Let's pray before we go that we'll be like Jesus to this world. Let's apply the message of the incarnation to our life. Jesus, search our hearts. Is there anything in us that's not like you? Change it right now. Make us humble like you, Jesus. Make us humble like you, Jesus. Is there anything you're doing today out of selfish ambition? Anything you're doing today that's not treating people with respect and love and honor? Yeah, you may have to discipline. You may have to come strong. Jesus had to whip people out the temple. But can you do it in love? Can you do it with kindness? A few moments before we go right now, ask Jesus to make you humble like him. If you're here today and you've never been born again by Jesus, just call out to the Father and say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Make me a new creation because of what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection. And simply say, Jesus, be the Lord or the master of my life right now, and you'll be saved. If you're here today and you're not saved, do it right now. Those of us who are saved, are you living like Jesus? Are you living like Jesus? In just a few moments, we'll dismiss. And when we do, anyone who needs prayer can come up, and you're even welcome now to come up as we pray. But a few moments as a congregation before we dismiss. If you're sick in your body, we'll pray for healing today because when Jesus went on the cross by his stripes, we received healing. If you're sorrowful today, if you're brokenhearted today, let Jesus touch you today and heal your heart because he came to set the captives free. He loves you so much. If you need help in your finances or in your marriage or with your children, come up, we'll pray. Let us all pray before we go. A few more moments, then we'll dismiss. Jesus, speak to our hearts right now.